Testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon, a very happy Radio Free Mormon to be broadcasting to you from behind, from, oh, from enemy lines, broadcasting behind enemy lines. I forgot my own, my own slogan that I came up with seven years ago. Anyway, that's because I'm so excited. And the reason I'm so excited because General Conference, semi-annual General Conference 2023, the 193rd of these things that we've had to endure is done. It is over. It is in the can, and I couldn't possibly be happier. You know, I might even look at some of these comments over here, although I know that I've got to put them off the screen. I apologize, everybody. I've got so much to report on um, from this last session of General Conference. I'm just going to have to not look at you. I apologize. Please have fun amongst yourselves. I know you will. You always do. I do look at all of these later, and I looked at the live chat from the morning session today between sessions. And yeah, I wish I could join you, but at least you're having fun and I'm having fun bringing you the recap. Please like, please subscribe to this channel. Please do. I'd really appreciate it. And now on with the show. Let me go to my notes. By the way, there's a big surprise at the end of this session, just so you know. All right. Now I just got a report from somebody who was watching the video you see, I can't watch the video too much all the time because I'm busy making all these notes. And usually there's not that much to watch because it's a bunch of talking heads, right? But I do flip back and forth and check on things to see what I can see when I'm not making notes. But something I had missed during the morning session when Dewey Waddle, the bishop, gave his talk about Tim Ballard, the talk about Tim Ballard that didn't mention Tim Ballard's name, he got done Lights go are going down. He walks out of the light. He walks past President Ballard, who's sitting there. And President Ballard reach out and takes his hand. Oh, you bet he does. It's as if he's saying, thanks for throwing me a lifeline, bro. Your position as apostle is now assured. Okay. So the first speaker, though, is Elder Dale G. Renland. We almost know who's going to speak in the last session because we know who hasn't spoken before now. And Dale Renland is one of those. And he's going to give us a story about the finding of King Tut's tomb. You know, I wish sometimes at the beginning of the story, they'd tell us what it's about instead of making us figure it out as we go along. But basically, basically, he goes through this detail about the, the story of the finding of King Tut's tomb and tells us details of the story I didn't know. And apparently, they start. it starts in 1907. And these two guys get together. One is an Egyptologist, one of them is a financier. And they're wanting to try and find the tomb of Tutankhamun, which, of course, they will find. We know that, right? Uh, but it's going to take a while because they're busy looking everywhere in the Valley of the Kings. And then they get done with their last season. And the financier is saying, you haven't found anything. This has been, you know, a number of years going on. You haven't found anything. At least you haven't found King Tut's tomb. And I don't think I want to continue to support you. And this guy, uh, who was it, Carter? Yeah, the Egyptologist is Carter, who pleads for one more season. Please just give me money for one more season. He says, okay, okay, I'll give you money for one more season. And guess what happens? They figure, well, we've dug everywhere else, and every every square inch of um, the King's Valley, Valley of the Kings, has been dug in, except for the ground underneath where we're camping. So they dig there, and guess what they find? They find the steps leading down to the tomb, right under where they were camping. I wonder what the moral will be from this story. Hmm, can't guess. They dug there, found the steps, and there was uh, gold everywhere. This is just in the antechamber. And after three months of cataloging the contents of the antechamber, they opened the burial chamber in 1923. So that looks like 16 years of looking around there between 1907 and 1923. At least that's when his story begins and where it ends. It's 100 years ago. And, of course, he says, for years they overlooked what was literally under their feet. Oh, Auntie M, Auntie M, I've learned that if I want to find happiness, I won't look any further than my own backyard. Yeah, this is a common sentiment. It's good enough as things go. Yeah, we need to look around us for happiness because sometimes it's right there where we are because there's no place like home. There's no place like home. And there's no place like digging under your camp. Now, this segues in his talk to not finding Jesus because we're digging in all the wrong places. No, if we dug under our camp, we might find Jesus. No, it's uh, not finding Jesus because of looking beyond the mark. During Jesus's ministry, many looked beyond him 
They crucified him. They condemned him, not necessarily in that order. And they waited for somebody else to bring them salvation. They overlooked Jesus. They were looking beyond the mark. And we need to guard against this tendency to look beyond the mark because we might miss Jesus in our lives. We need him. He is our mark. If we think there's something beyond what he offers, we deny or diminish his power in our lives. Now, that's interesting because we know that Jesus in Mormon speak is code for the church. We know how they get there. The servants of the Lord, which are the leaders, leaders are servants, at least in theory in the Mormon church. And God speaks through his servants. So the leaders of the church have the direct pipeline to God. What they say is what God would say. And so what they would say is what Jesus would say. So when Elder Rinland says, we need him, he is our mark, he also means and actually means the church. We need the church. The church is our mark. If we think there is something beyond what the church offers, we deny or diminish the power of God in our lives. That's the Mormon whisperer interpretation of what he's saying. And I am a Mormon whisperer indeed, having spent a great deal of my life, the majority of my life in the LDS church and having attended a multiplicity of general conferences. Elder Renlund talks about all the great things Jesus has done for us, uh, that Jesus Christ is our treasure, linking it back to the gold in the antechamber. And at this point, by the way, someone, a woman, started yelling slash screaming in the audience. I mentioned before, I think they have baffles and things in order to keep the sound that's going on in the audience from being brought into the microphone that's on the stand. But this woman was really hollering if that's the case. I don't know what it was she was yelling about. But it went on once, it went on twice. It's like, you know, someone is screaming. But then it stopped. So I guess it got taken care of. I don't know what happened. Maybe if somebody who was there and who's watching this show, I don't know if there's a huge cross-section on that Venn diagram. But if you were there, if you know what happened with this woman who was screaming, what was going on, could you let me know? Maybe in the comments. All right? Okay, Elder Redland goes on with his talk. As a kid, he stepped into the street. As the truck came by, his father grabbed him, pulled him back to save him. And he thought maybe it would have been better for him to be killed by the truck because I will never be as clean as I am just having been baptized. So he's eight years old. He's repeating the same old thing that we hear about always in the church that, you know, if you got killed right after you got baptized, whether you're a kid, whether you're an adult convert, uh, whether you're an 18-year-old convert like I was, Right after your baptism is the best time to get killed because you've just been washed clean of all, clean of all your sins. Elder Rinland, for some reason, is going to debunk that notion. And I thought that was a scriptural doctrine in the LDS church. But maybe not anymore. Things are changing. And different apostles now, this is one. There was another one before in a prior session. I can't remember exactly what it was right now. My head is full of general conference. But he's going to say that the waters of baptism don't really cleanse us of our sins. And I thought, what? That's a mistake now? He says, it's a mistake if we think that. I thought that's what we believed. And I thought, really? I thought that's what all the scripture said too. But no, now cleansing of sin comes not from baptism, but from the subsequent repenting and taking the sacrament. Crazy times we're living in. It's a good thing nobody really listens to this or takes it seriously. So I guess there's never really any point that we can die and be assured of going to heaven. Is that the point he's making? It's important to keep people guessing, you know, because that means they have to rely on church leaders. They never know what their spiritual status is before God. Here's a guy, by the way, that just occurs to me who's received his second anointing, who is assured of celestial glory, regardless of what he does in this life, unless he gets really carried away talking to everybody else and now saying, even when you're baptized, you're not assured of heaven. Yeah, there's a bit of inequality there in that situation. Our spiritual status, he goes on, is weakened when we voluntarily skip sacrament meeting. He needs to say that because President Nelson isn't there. They're not doing sacrament, but he may be skipping conference, but it's not voluntary. Our spiritual status is weakened when we voluntarily skip sacrament meeting or don't think of Jesus during the sacrament. You see, this is why I say that 
in the Mormon church, we can never do enough. And we can never do everything we're supposed to do, or we can't do it as good as we're supposed to do it because there's too many things to do. And no matter what we do, we could always do it better. That's a thought that came to me here. He's really nitpicking on the things now, but that induces guilt and guilt plays in the Mormon church's favor. You may have noticed about all the temples announced in recent years, he says. Well, yeah, <laughs> I had. Who hasn't? And then he says, paradoxically, as temples become more accessible, it may be easier for us to become more casual about temple attendance. I think there's probably some truth to that. I think that when things are more difficult, sometimes we'll be more likely to sacrifice in order to get there. It seems more meaningful than if it is closer to us. So that makes sense to me. Of course, then I think, if that's true, and I think that what you're saying is true, Elder Renlund, why do you keep building all these temples? If the building of temples and more temples makes temple attendance go down, why are you spending all this money to build them? That's my question. Especially when the church membership does not support it, by which I mean the number of active members, and especially the number of temple recommend-holding members. So the very accessibility can make our temple attendance drop. He says that again. Our commitment to attend should be as strong when temples are nearby as when they are distant. Again, why build them? He goes back to the Egyptologist and the financier, Carter and Conifan, I think was the name. They had to search and dig for years before they realized it was right under them. And we don't have to waste all that time searching. You know why? Because we have a humble prophet of God. I told you, I have told you over and over again during this general conference, every talk leads to following the prophet. Every general conference leads, and every general conference talks leads to following the church leaders. So when we do what we are supposed to do, we can find happiness and we can be healed. Again, with this happiness theorem, right? You do what you're supposed to do, you'll be happy. Just focus on Jesus which means the church, the Mormon Jesus. Focus on Jesus. As you come to him, you will get all the strength you need to be a good Mormon. He bears testimony. He ends. Next talk is John C. Pingree, Jr. of the 70. And he has a few good things to say, I think. No, that isn't the talk. We'll see what he has to say. After being called as a mission president, which he calls, not I was called as a mission president, now the acceptable phraseology of that is, when we were called, he and his wife, when we were called to be full-time mission leaders. So apparently that is what they're calling it now. Maybe they think that's more acceptable. The reality is he's still the mission president, whatever you call him. And he said, they said as a goal before they went out to the mission um, to memorize all of the missionaries' names, not just him, not just his wife, but the kids that he's going to be yanking over there too. And they got there, first time, they're meeting all the missionaries at a big conference, and his son, who was rather young, starts calling all the missionaries by their first name because he memorized them, and he knows the faces that go with them. And his dad says to the kid, he says, hey, uh, you're supposed to use their titles. And his son says to him, Dad, I thought we were supposed to memorize their names. Well, it's an interesting story, I guess. It's conference. There's a low bar. And he says, bad information is all around us today. Yes, there is. And a lot of it's coming through general conference and approved church sources. We need to recognize truth. And that need has never been more important than today. The questions he wants to talk about are, what is truth? Yeah, he's going to be able to solve that in the general conference talk. The greatest minds of the planet have been wrestling with that one for thousands of years. Second, where do we find truth? Well, I think we know where that is. Mormonism. And finally, how can we share it? I think we know how that is. Teach Mormonism. Okay, so what is truth? It's knowledge of things as they were, as they are, and as they are to come. Truth is immutable and eternal, he tells us. God reveals truth to us through a network of revelatory relationships. He's talking about the Godhead, the prophets, in us. So, the truth is imparted most often to us through living prophets. There it is again. <laughs> New talk, same idea. God expects us to seek, recognize, and act on truth. But of course, we know where that truth is going to be found. 
Our ability to do this is made possible by aligning ourselves with the teachings of modern prophets. So we're supposed to find the truth, but he says our ability to find the truth is made possible by aligning ourselves with the teachings of modern prophets. So one might think that you investigate Mormonism, and when you decide that it's true, you're going to join it. That's what I did. But what he's saying is you have to do everything the Mormon church tells you to do before you can find the truth from the modern prophets. It seems a little bit circular, but I think that's what his reasoning was. God reveals doctrinal truths through prophets, and the Holy Ghost confirms those truths to us. Again, the Holy Ghost is going to confirm only those things that church leaders tell us. <clears throat> Excuse me. He talks about the perils of seeking for truths not yet revealed. You know, all those nagging questions that you have when you start studying church history and learning more about the church, more than is presented just in those official materials that they want you to exclude your research to. Um, I said exclude, I mean restrict, restrict your research too. He says that he too has sought answers to heartfelt questions. So he's got questions too, not doubts, mind you. Oh, no, he's a faithful member. He only has questions, no doubts. But some answers, he says, have come, but many have not. <clears throat> so he has unresolved questions. He says, God helps us find peace with our unresolved questions while we wait on him to give us the answer. Yeah, I've been waiting a long time for some of my answers. I'll bet he has too. He's going to have to wait until after he's dead to get those answers. What was it? Was it Elder Ballard again? It was one of the apostles. I think it was Elder Ballard who said that he's got so many questions about the gospel that he doesn't know as an apostle, as a senior apostle, and he's going to have to wait until after he dies to ask Jesus. That was a bit of a showing your cards moment because I thought that they were seeing Jesus and that they could ask him their questions and Jesus would let them know the answer. Guess not, after all. Now, now he talks about the difference. Oh, the wonderful difference between doctrine versus policy. Yes, we know where that's going. Doctrine is eternal truth, but policy can change. He refers or defines doctrine as eternal truths like, among other things, the nature of the Godhead. He actually says that. Check the, check the report. Check the website. Among other things, he defines doctrine, the eternal stuff, as being the nature of the Godhead. Well, of course, was the nature of the Godhead doctrine and eternal in the Book of Mormon when it is a form of modalism that God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost are one God? Is it the nature of the Godhead in the 1833 Book of Commandments? No, 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 excuse me. In the, um, the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, where it also has the lectures on faith in the Doctrine and Covenants. As you may know, if you've listened to me for some time, the name Doctrine and Covenants came from the fact that the lectures on faith were first in the volume, the seven lectures, which were given to the School of the Prophets in Kirtland, Ohio. And those were the first part of the Doctrine and Covenants. That's the doctrine in the Doctrine and Covenants. And the Covenants part, the second part, were the revelations as we have them in our Doctrine and Covenants today. Of course, there weren't so many then. That's the Doctrine and Covenants. But in Lecture 5 of the Doctrine and Covenants, in the Lectures on Faith, the Godhead was defined as Jesus has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. God has a body, but it's not a body of flesh and bones. It's a body of spirit. And the Holy Ghost doesn't have a body at all because the Holy Ghost is not a personage in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. Instead, it is defined as being the mind that is shared between the Father and the Son. Is that the doctrine of the nature of the Godhead that never changes? Or is it when we get to 1842 or 1843, when we get to section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is the one that we talk about and accept today, that God has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also, but the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit. Is that the doctrine of the Godhead that is unchangeable? None of these seem to be unchangeable. They seem to be changing quite quickly during Joseph Smith's ministry. It will change again under Brigham Young, who will teach that Adam is God the Father. And that's the nature of the Godhead. Is that the doctrine that never changes? 
No, apparently not, because that got discarded. So I spend time here just saying that he wants to give as an example of doctrine something that should obviously be an example of doctrine, which is the true nature of the Godhead, but that has changed multiple times over the course of the church's history. He says doctrine never changes, except when it does, of course. But he says policies do change. And our problem is, is when we confuse policy with doctrine. Policy changes, doctrine doesn't. This makes us confused when policy changes, but we think it's doctrine. Oh, silly members, confusing doctrine with policy. I think the reality is if it changes, it's policy. If it doesn't, it's doctrine until it changes, at which point it will become policy. He doesn't give any examples. I've given you multiple examples. He doesn't give any examples, and considering the examples I've given, there's probably a good reason why. He doesn't want to give any examples of doctrine because it could become policy as early as tomorrow. It might help us understand what he's talking about if he gave examples, but it doesn't seem like that's really where he's going. He closes with his testimony of the truths he has come to know. And one of those is that uh, it's about God, Jesus Christ. Jesus established his church. Over time, teachings were changed and ordinances were lost, and Jesus came to restore his church. Now, this is one of the testimonies of the truths he has come to know. This is doctrine. This never changes, except for the fact that it is changing. What he has set forth is the traditional understanding in the LDS church of the apostasy and the restoration. This is what was taught for ages. Uh, it's what James Talmadge taught. When he wrote his book, The Great Apostasy, it was the whole raison d'etre for the restoration of the church in these days. It had to be lost in order for it to be restored, and it had to be restored because it had been lost. But even that is changing now in the Mormon church, as witnessed by the new book on the apostasy published by the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Studies titled Ancient Christians, An Introduction for Latter-day Saints. It's now in its second printing, so it's doing pretty good. It introduces a new idea of the apostasy, which accents what good Christians these early people were, even after we would have said that the apostasy had commenced, and that it is more of a continuum of righteousness through the Dark Ages up to the Restoration instead of the great apostasy we grew up hearing about, or at least I grew up hearing about. One of the reviews of this book is even titled, Not Your Parents' Apostasy and Restoration. That's the title of the review by Michael Austin, published at Common Consent on November 19th, 2022. And Peggy Fletcher Stack wrote an article about this new book, and the title of the article was, The Great Apostasy? What Latter-day Saints Get Wrong About Early Christians. Well, what Latter-day Saints today get wrong about early Christians is what Mormons of former generations, and even this generation, I'm part of this generation, damn it, what even Mormons of this generation were told the great apostasy was. They're all changing things in front of our eyes, and this particular individual, John Pingree, has not gotten the memo yet because he's up there advocating the old definition of the apostasy as truth. The irony being that doctrine doesn't change. This is doctrine, but it's changing, which I guess means it's going to be policy before you know it. So the question I have is this, and it's sort of similar to what I just said, is the great apostasy the church used to talk about and which you have the speaker, which you have inadvertently recapitulated in your talk, is the great apostasy doctrine that can't be changed or is it a policy? I think it's both. It used to be a doctrine that can't be changed. Now it's changed, so now it's a policy. Okay, choir sings, tell me the stories of Jesus. Now we get to Elder Valerie Cordone, who's going to give us parenting classes and parenting lessons from the scriptures and the words of the living prophets. It's got my attention. Oh, first quote up in his talk is from President Nelson. There were some people talking in some comment sections that I had seen in between sessions uh, that they were comparing the number of people who were quoted. Some people were saying uh, President Nelson was quoted more. Some people saying Elder Holland was quoted more. My take on this is it's President Nelson, hands down, is being quoted much more. And Elder Valerie Corden himself is going to try and set the new land speed record for the number of times he can quote 
from President Nelson. I think he's going to win. I don't have all these quotes written down, and they're not necessarily worth writing down. But he definitely has, number-wise, the most quotes from President Nelson, I think, of any speaker in general conference. So that's got to be good for some gold stars. Uh, the quote from Nelson, President Nelson, is along the lines of parents deserve guidance from heaven in raising their kids. He next quotes Elder Oaks because, you know, you want to quote Elder Oaks after you've quoted President Nelson. I thought he'd quote Elder Iring next, but he doesn't. And Elder Oaks talks about the gospel culture. So once again, we're going to have this idea of the gospel culture. I've talked about this in prior episodes, not in this conference, but in prior conferences, where they're trying to introduce this idea, and it's a new idea, that the gospel has its own culture, and that this culture that the gospel have is the best culture ever, better than any culture in the entire world that's ever existed, the gospel culture, and it goes all the way back to the pre-mortal existence. This is the culture that is the best. So when you join the church, you join a new culture, and anything from your old culture that might interfere with your new culture needs to be jettisoned in favor of the best culture, the Mormon culture. Um, no, he doesn't quote Elder Iring next. I think that's a little bit of a slam to Elder Iring. I can't believe he dissed Elder Iring like that. But he quotes from Elder Oaks again, at least. Yeah. So it's President Nelson, then two quotes from President Oaks, nothing from Elder Iring, and then it's going to be Nelson, Nelson, Nelson all the way down. He says three crucial things that can help us establish a higher gospel culture in our homes. Teach freely, model discipleship, and invite to act. Teach freely. Read scriptures about how Adam and Eve taught their children. That's what he does. And we teach using the resources the church has made available. Yeah, he wants to make sure that that's clear. You don't be teaching your children from any non-church-proved resources. We want to make sure that they're being taught, that they're being carefully taught for those of you who know South Pacific. Second is model discipleship. Now that model is a verb. We're supposed to model discipleship. Jesus does what the fathers do. Excuse me, Jesus does what the father does. And parents need to model discipleship for their children. We need to teach them about all the gospel things, but we also need to model it by living it. Okay. And three, invite to act. We encourage children to choose what is right. And of course, what is right is Mormonism. And then the children use their agency to do what we tell them to do. Yeah. He quotes President Nelson again, and I didn't get them all, about being wary of the philosophies of unbelieving men and women. Wow. That sounds personal. Is he talking about me? Perhaps. You need to be wary of what I say. Um. And once again, he's going to quote President Nelson. Um, and this is where I remark, I think he's going for the record on President Nelson quotes. He tells a story about in primary in Guatemala, when he was a child, his parents taught him about patriarchal blessings. His mother told him about her experience getting her patriarchal blessing and how great it was. And this inspired him as a child to receive his patriarchal blessing. When he was 12, they had to navigate the search for a patriarch because they got no stake. There is no state patriarch where they are. And he says he had to travel 156 kilometers away to find one. He felt that God knew him after receiving his patriarchal blessing. And he thanks his parents for helping him want to receive his patriarchal blessing. He quotes President Nelson again, but I didn't get it. I didn't write it down. It really is important what President Nelson is being quoted as saying so much as that President Nelson is being quoted. I think that's his strategy. And that's the end of his talk. Now we go to Elder J. Kimo Esplin of the 70, who explains his name, which is apparently Hawaiian, Kimo, um, K-I-M-O. His dad taught in Hawaii, and he tells the story of a Japanese woman who came to Hawaii, though she had been married in a Buddhist wedding right before Pearl Harbor. He's going to go through all her travail. She's going to end up going to Hawaii much further down the road after she joins the Mormon church to get to the temple there. Okay. But he talks about the Battle of Okinawa, 1945, where she lived and how it raged for three months. And there were so many casualties. There are 240,000 known people who died. And I say known people who died, minimum. Wow. To escape the onslaught, she and her family sought refuge in a mountain cave. One night, with her family starving and her husband unconscious, 
She thought about using the hand grenade authorities had supplied for that purpose, but she didn't. What he tells us in his talk is something amazing happened to her that night in that cave on Okinawa that gave her a message from God and gave her purpose in her life. So she brought her husband back around with honey and some other things, and they finally recover. The war ends. They go back to their lives. But what was the experience she had? Elder Esplan, come on. He doesn't tell us. This huge experience that she had in the cave under these horrible conditions, he's got nothing. He doesn't tell us. I don't know if he does. I don't know if he knows. Anyway, this lady now, she starts learning about Christianity now that the war is over. She's still in Japan. But she becomes concerned about all those ancestors of hers who had died without learning about Christianity. And we all know where this goes. Two sister missionaries find her, teach her about the spirit world and temples, and she is enthralled. So she and her family join the Mormon church. They were faithful and active, and then her husband has a stroke and dies. <laughs> yeah, it's a risky thing being faithful and active in the Mormon church. There's God helping out the people who are faithful again. Her neighbors blamed her troubles on her joining a Christian church. Well, she ignored them. She continued to be faithful. And a few years, a few years later, the mission, this is all this long, prolonged process of her being able to get to the temple. The mission president, he feels inspired to encourage members to work toward going to the temple. Now, there is no temple in Japan. The nearest temple is in Hawaii, and that's quite a ways away from Japan, and it costs money to get there, and they are in dire straits. Not a lot of money going around in Japan at this time. The mission president had also been a soldier at Okinawa. He was an enemy, a mortal enemy, but now he is a friend. She wanted to go to the temple, but it was impossible for her. So a number of things start happening. They're kind of miraculous in an unmiraculous kind of way. The cost was reduced because people had an idea. Why don't we all put our money together and charter a plane? Good idea. Uh, he mentions they sold records of them singing, I think that must be religious songs. The title of the record was Japanese Saints Sing. I'm not sure that hit the top of Billboard or how much money they made from it, but it was an idea. It was a good uh, money-making idea, fundraiser. And then he says, just sort of in passing, and some sold their homes to get the money. Oh, my gosh. Selling your home to get money to go to the temple. He doesn't say what happened when they returned from the temple, but apparently when they returned, it was to no home. Okay. Obviously, a lot of commitment there on the part of the Japanese saints, who I have a soft place in my heart for, having served there. But still, even after all that, even if they had gotten to Hawaii, there was no translation of the endowment in Japanese. If you were Japanese and you could get there, you had to watch it in English and hope that your English was good enough to understand it. But then it happened and the, the translation was done and they had it available in Japanese. They fly to Hawaii to go to the temple there. Now they were worried. Think about this. This is shortly after World War II, at least I think it is shortly after. It's certainly after World War II. And the Japanese people are worried about how they're going to be received in Pearl Harbor. I mean, in, in Hawaii after Pearl Harbor and everything. But he's happy to report they were received well and with a lot of love by the saints in the temple. And they spent 10 days there going to the temple. And then uh, either I wasn't listening close enough or it was a bit confusing because that's not the trip that our hero, the Japanese sister, went on. It was a second temple trip that included the widowed Japanese sister. He mentions that. And these excursions from Japan to Hawaii to go to the temple, they occurred regularly until the Tokyo Japan Temple was dedicated in 1980. By the way, I was there for the dedication of the Tokyo Temple in 1980. It was October. It was actually 43 years ago this month. Today's October 1st, 2023. And this fellow, once again, Elder Kimo Esplin, he tells us he got his mission call to Japan and he arrived there shortly after the temple was dedicated. So we just barely missed each other. And he must be uh, probably a similar age to me. He doesn't look that old. 
He gives us a Nelson quote. President Nelson cannot be quoted enough in this general conference. And this quote is about getting extra power from Jesus when we go through temple ordinances. Yeah, we get that extra power. The temple can bring together even people's... By the way, I thought this was a nice comment at the end. The temple can bring together even peoples who were once bitter enemies. Of course, on the other hand, it can also separate families when some are deemed unworthy of entering the temple for temple weddings. So just kind of stuff on both sides of that ledger. The choir sings, rejoice the, the Lord is king, and I'm rejoicing because we're halfway done with the last session of General Conference, but there's a huge roadblock ahead, and that roadblock is named Garrett Gong. Oh my gosh, this guy. You know, I'm sure he's a perfectly nice guy and wonderful and respectable and all those things. But he is the most boring general authority, if not the most boring person I've ever seen in my life. He takes boring things and he writes them in a boring way and he delivers them in a completely boring manner. He's a triple threat. He talks about an inscription on his watch that was in code. I love you. I'm not going to go through the cutesy way he he translates it. Uh, I think it was a watch. I think he gave it to his wife. He does call his wife by name in general conference and say, I love you. That was sweet. I heard some awes from the women in general conference. But now he's going to talk about different languages. That was a setup for him to talk about different languages. And the languages he's going to talk about are the language. There's three of them. And let me see if I uh, wrote these down. Well, I did write them down. I just didn't write them all down together. He probably didn't tell us all. Uh, the language actually did. I just didn't get them all. The language of warmth and reverence. Okay, so there's the first language. Children in different countries have different ways of expressing their love for their parents. And he gives many examples of that. We speak with warmth and reverence of Jesus Christ in our sacrament meetings. He talks about we use respectful prayer language when we talk to God. See, respect um, is very, very important. And I think it's important and should be more important. It's very important in Asia. At least it was when I was there as a, a missionary. Um, and I think it could and should be more important in other parts of the world than Asia. Non-members say how Mormons, oh, he, he mentions how non-members, non-Mormons, often say how Mormon terms often need decoding. And he gives a few modestly humorous examples of that, like a steak center. Yeah, we all know that, right? Where you could have a nice beef meal, he says. So he gives a few other examples. He says, we need to be kind. I'm still working on that one. A sister, oh gosh, he gives this example. He says, we need to be kind and gives this example. It's obviously of a young uh, woman who's going to a dance, I expect. But he says, a sister was told her skirt was too short. Yeah. We know that. Your skirt's too short. You got to go home, get on something that's better before you can come back. But what he says about it is, I mean, I was hoping he was going to excoriate whoever it was who told her that. But no. Instead of that, he lionizes the girl and says, instead of being offended, she said, my heart is converted. Please be patient while my heart catches up. What? Hang on a second. She said, my heart is converted. Please be patient while my, it's probably while my clothing catches up. I put the same word down both times. Um, but what does that have to do with the, with the length of her skirt? Nothing. If her heart is converted, shouldn't that be the important thing? Shouldn't that be really the only important thing? I think so. So he, the second language he wants to talk about is the gospel language of service and sacrifice. Some of our members are not accepting church calls. Oh, this is, uh, you better accept callings, okay? If you're given a calling, you need to accept it. He sort of gives a token nod to, well, it's okay if you're old and you're getting decrepit, maybe you can't do it. But he leaves that very quickly to go to quotes from general authorities about how you really need to accept callings when they're given to you. So he says, some of our members are not accepting church calls. He's told this by bishops and state presidents. Shocking. So we need to accept those calls, brothers and sisters. But then he says to stake and ward leaders, let's do our part too. As we call and release, let's do it with dignity, always dignity. And he says to them, please counsel and listen to sister leaders. 
And he quotes J. Reuben Clark, who said, you don't decline a calling. And then he quotes David B. Haight to the effect that we always should have a calling in the church so we can serve others. Then he suggests we should have more ward activities. Now, I thought this was interesting. He's suggesting that we need to have more ward activities to knit together the membership. I think that's probably true, and I think that would be a good idea. Now he gets to number three, the third language, which is the gospel language of covenant belonging. So what has he done? He's talking about warmth and reverence. He's talking about service and sacrifice. Now he's talking about covenant belonging. We need to not think we know what our own self-interests are and how to pursue them. Yes, he says that. Once again, we need to not think we know what our own self-interests are and how to pursue them. And I wrote, what? Who would know better than we what our own self-interests are and how to pursue them? I mean, we know what our self-interests are. Maybe we need some help pursuing them with some information that we don't know. But how, um, how humbly arrogant of Elder Gong to say this. Um, so who would know better than us what our own self-interests are? Well, it's the Mormon church leaders, of course. That's who. It's Elder Gong. That's who. He speaks in terms of Jesus, but we all know who speaks for Jesus don't we? Okay, so now we get to a 70 named Elder Christophe Gerard Carrier, I think. He's French, and uh, I don't do French very well. But I think that that's his name, and I think I pronounced it as close as I'm going to be able to. So he talks about judging other people incorrectly. He gives a, a couple of scriptures about stories about how people judged others incorrectly, like David, you know, you look on the outside, but you need to look on the heart. And then he gives counterexamples like uh, Jesus and the woman taken in adultery, how everybody else is judging her badly, but he sees more than they see. Or Jesus and the centurion whose daughter he, he, he healed. All the Jews are going to hate the centurion. He represents the Romans. But Jesus sees him as a human being and his daughter as someone who needs to be healed. He also mentions the woman with an issue of blood. She was an outcast to be shunned, but Jesus saw her differently. He saw her alone and alienated due to circumstances she couldn't control. I thought all these examples were very nice. Because once again, we're talking about Jesus loving the people who are looked down on or outcast or sometimes hated like the centurion by everybody else. The woman taken in adultery wasn't thought too highly of by the people who wanted to stone her either. The Lord saw these people for whom they were and ministered to each one. He gives us a story about his wife who received an assignment. Oh, his wife's name's Isabel. He mentions that. To visit a member who was sick, elderly, and withdrawn. It's a lady, of course. Isabel said she could do... Is, Isabel talks to this lady who doesn't want to be visited at all. She just wants to be a recluse. But Isabel convinces, convinces this lady to allow Isabel to visit her by saying, you can do something for me. And what you can do for me is allow me to visit you. Shades of Camilla Kimball. If anybody is old enough to remember that, I won't belabor the point here because I'm too excited to get to the end. Well, this woman that Isabel is visiting, she had a surgery on her feet, I think it was, which required frequent changing of bandages. It sounds really nasty. But Isabel was there for her, according to the story. And I don't see any reason to disbelieve this one. Um, Isabel doesn't see how ugly it is or smell the stench, but she was there to change the bandages for this lady. So good for Isabel. She sounds like someone special. Why isn't Isabel speaking? I'd like to hear from Isabel. Now we get some quotes from about not, not judging others because of any differences, right? The differences of the race, the religion. And he, I think he's quoting President Nelson here, where he gives this long list of things that we shouldn't be judging people by. And I think he leads out, leaves out a couple of things, the things that the church continues to discriminate about, whether it's, uh, whether it's trans or uh, sexual orientation or things like that. I don't think that made the list. Maybe it did. Um, so I wrote, so the Lord, but anyway, even if it's just about race, right? Uh, if you, 
discriminate against somebody because of their race. According to this quote from President Nelson, it is offensive to the Lord. Yeah, I thought being offended was a choice, but apparently the Lord chooses to be offended by this. And not unreasonably so. But if it's offensive to the Lord for us to judge people because of their differences, the difference of race, are we to say then that the Lord was offended with the church up until 1978? See, this is where it leads. When you have the history of the church, but then you're quoting from people who are leaders in the church who want to act like that history doesn't exist and like they're the paragons of virtue. We've had this issue before in this conference. It was probably based on the same quote. And then he quotes C.S. Lewis. Yes. Remember back in the 1990s, sometimes in the 80s, when you couldn't go to a general conference without hearing C.S. Lewis. You couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting a C.S. Lewis quote in general conference. This is the quote about how there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. And if you took somebody who's, you know, the, the worst person you ever saw, if you could see them for who they really are in all their glory, you would be tempted to worship them. That quote. And actually, he doesn't cite it, but if memory serves, it's from a book or paper that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Weight of Glory. I think that's true. Okay. But he he quotes C.S. Lewis. I was so excited about that. And um, this is the one that gets quoted by Mormons in general conference the most often because it intimates that Lewis believed in deification of people, right? That if you saw the worst person that you can find, but you saw how they really are, they'd be so glorious you'd be tempted to worship them. When Mormons read that, they hear, we can become gods. But I think it's doubtful that C.S. Lewis took it the same way or meant it the same way. He goes on with how we treat each other really matters. We need to be nice to each other. Yeah, we should. Let's be nice to each other. I think that's a good fundamental principle. And then he quotes somebody else. He quotes the words of a primary song. And this primary song is a recent addition, I believe, to the prime, the new primary songbook. It's by Carol Lynn Pearson. It's the one that has the lyrics about how other people may laugh at you because you're different, but I won't. I won't. And he quotes a verse of that, and I was really touched by it, and I thought, go, Carol Lynn Pearson. You are still a force to be reckoned with in Mormonism and even in general conference, even in October of 2023. Good for you. Now the choir sings, Consider the Lilies. And we get the concluding speaker. Oh, 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 okay. So right before, <laughs> Elder, um, it's President Eyring who's conducting him. Right before this song, okay, he says that the, the choir will sing, Consider the Lilies, after which the concluding speaker will be President Russell M. Nelson. And yeah, you can hear the gasps of astonishment coming from the crowd. What? How can that be? Where is he going to be? Is he coming in? Is he going to be flying in on a wire? Well, they have to wait while the choir sings Consider the Lilies to find the answer to that question. And what we find out is it's a pre-recorded address by President Nelson. It's after he got his back injured. It ends up apparently not being, uh, he fell. I had imagined in my mind um, when an older person falls, a breaking of a bone like a leg or a hip. But that's not what he says. But let me describe it to you first. So this is pre-recorded. He is in conference, the conference center, apparently. He's in his chair with a high red back, but he's sitting down. And his eyes are pretty red. And um, obviously, he's in pain. And he talks about being in pain. Although I imagine he has some medication for the pain. But I think it must have been recorded pre -re I don't know when. It could have been this morning. It could have been last night. But it was uh, recorded sometime shortly before or during conference, I think. Because he mentions in it, he starts by saying that three weeks ago, he injured the muscles in his back. That's what happened. So while he was given more than, while he has given more than 100 general conference addresses standing, he's going to give this one sitting. He talks about he recently celebrated his 99th birthday and he's commenced his 100th year of living. People ask him, how can you live so long? 
And he says, a better question is, what have I learned in nearly a century of living? So he's going to give us the most important things he's learned in 100 years of living, or almost 100. He says, may I share one of the most crucial lessons I've learned? And of course, we're all leaning forward, thinking it might be something noteworthy, and it's just the same old stuff. Mormonism has the same old stuff, and you can package it one of a hundred different ways, but once you open the package and the wrapping and tear it open, it's the same old burger. This is what his most crucial lesson is. I have learned that Heavenly Father's plan for us is fabulous. Yeah, he uses the fabulous word. That what we do in this life really matters and that our Savior's atonement is what makes our Heavenly Father's plan possible. And he says, as, as he's wrestled with the intense pain from his injury, he has appreciated more what Jesus did for us because Jesus went through all that pain, right? And his pain was even more than what President Nelson is struggling through. He suffered pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind so he can comfort us, heal us, rescue us in times of need. This gets repeated so often in Mormonism and perhaps in other Christian religions, I'm not sure. But this gets repeated so often and it seems like nobody stops to think about the question, why does Jesus have to suffer pain more than us in order to be able to comfort us and heal us and rescue us. Why is that ne necessary? I don't know. We say it all the time, but I'm not sure I've ever heard of an actual explanation for it. But that's what he says again. Of course, oh my gosh, the irony. Here's the president of the LDS church, the prophet of God on the face of the earth, uh, a prophet that someone, uh, was it Elder Razvan said earlier? Uh, he's not just the prophet of the church, he's the prophet of the whole world. This is the guy. This is God's right-hand man. This is God's co-pilot. <laughs> Some people say God is my co-pilot. God says President Nelson is my co-pilot. He's got to be the most righteous among us. We know that. But he's got all this intense pain, and he just said it helps him appreciate Jesus, who suffered pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, so he can heal us. So why isn't Jesus healing you in your time of need, President Nelson? It's a question that comes to my mind. It doesn't get answered. Then he quotes from Doctrine and Covenants about Jesus suffering the pain of all and causing him to bleed at every pore and tremble. We've heard that a number of times. During his healing, President Nelson's healing, the Lord has manifested his divine power in unmistakable ways. This is what President Nelson says, is that while he's been trying to recover from this, the Lord has manifested his divine power in unmistakable ways, just not by healing him, apparently. He talks about this philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry. It will be well with us. He says that's taking over the world. That's becoming very popular. But he says that that's one of the most absurd lies in the universe. That's a pretty absurd lie if it's one of the most in the universe. The things that will make your mortal life the best it can be will also make your eternal life the best it can be. That's a big secret. And we all know what that is. Mormonism. Mormonism is what will make your mortal life the best it can be. And Mormonism is what will make your eternal life the best it can be. So why isn't everybody Mormon? That's what I can't understand. And why is it the people who have experienced all these great blessings of being a Mormon are more and more leaving the church? He says, oh, here we go. Thinking celestial. This is his big catchphrase for his talk. Thinking celestial. He says to adopt the practice of thinking celestial. And I wrote, expect a new product line with that name on it going up after the conference. Remember a few years ago? Ponderize? Oh, yeah. This is thinking celestial. If he says it once, he says it 20 times in this conference talk. And I'm not kidding. I lost track, but it's got to be at least 20. He says, your choices today will determine, one, where you will live, excuse me, where you will live eternally, two, the kind of body with which you will be resurrected, whether it's a TK smoothie or not, and three, who you will live with for eternity. Now's where he starts holding families hostage. And he does it in kind of an obvious ham-fisted, some might say brutal way. I've been getting texts from people who are outraged at this talk, and the outrage may continue. We'll see. 
So what do you do? You think celestial. <laughs> I'm serious. You begin with the end in mind, which is the celestial kingdom. Then you consider how each of your decisions on earth will place you in the next world. Will it be leading you to the celestial kingdom or someplace lower? He says only men and only men and women who are sealed in the temple will be together throughout the eternities. So you got to get married to somebody of the opposite sex, obviously, regardless of what your proclivities may be. He quotes section 132 at length. This is either, I think it's probably verse 26, about having to be resurrected with a telestial body. TK Smoothie. And we are choosing not to live with our families forever. You see, this is where it starts getting a little bare-knuckled. If we choose to not follow Mormonism strictly and with exactness, if we choose to live telestial laws now, this would go for terrestrial as well, and those are the honorable men of the world by definition in section 76, as you recall. But if we choose to live telestial laws now, we are choosing not to live with our families forever. Blame the members. That's your fault. That's your choice. It sounds ominous, I wrote. It sounds like arm twisting and scare tactics to get everybody to follow Mormonism. I think that's true. If you do that, he goes on, you will have a wonderful life today. Follow Mormonism, be happy. And a wonderful life forever. Follow Mormonism, be happy. Except Mormonism really doesn't make a lot of people happy. I mean, I'm sorry. I know they know they have to pretend to be happy. But inwardly, they're not as happy as they pretend to be. By and large. At least that's been my experience. So he goes on through this long list of things. And I didn't have time to type him up. He actually speaks faster than Elder Ballard. <laughs> but it's this whole list of things. When you're confronted by a dilemma, think celestial. When a whole list of bad things happen to you, think celestial. Over and over and over again. I wonder what the name of this talk will be. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably going to be Think Celestial. He goes on and on with examples, ending each with Think Celestial. As you think celestial, he says, expect opposition. Because who likes a guy who's thinking celestial all the time? There's going to be opposition to that. He tells, though not in detail, he tells in passing of a colleague who told him at one point, probably during his medical career, that President Nelson had too much temple in him. And an advisor, he says, unnamed in both instances, and an advisor penalized him in some unstated way because of his faith. But he thinks overall that thinking celestial has enhanced his career. As you think celestial, <laughs> you will want to pray more often and more sincerely. Don't make your prayers a shopping list, he cautions, though. God knows best, and his answers may surprise you. Oh, my God. Yes, his answers to my prayers have definitely surprised me on occasion in my life. But you know what the, the cure for that is? Continuing to think celestial. He goes back to Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail. Gives the quote we've heard before from section, what is it? Is it 121? I think it's 121. It's either 121, 122, or 123. Those are the three sections that are actually excerpts from one long letter, I think that Joseph Smith wrote from Liberty Jail, if I'm remembering that correctly. It's the one about, you know, this is all this bad crap that's happening to you, Joseph. It's going to give you experience. It'll be for your good. And don't complain because Jesus had it worse. And Job had it worse too. If thou endure it well, God will exalt thee on high. The Lord was teaching Joseph to think celestial and focus on the eternal reward rather than the concerns of the day. Any obsession... And he lists a lot. Any obsession with, um, what was it, uh, sex or pornography or alcohol or tobacco or eating. He includes eating. Any obsession offends God. Once again, God's getting offended all over the place. He's almost up there with the Holy Ghost as to how easily offended he becomes. He goes through many examples, but at bottom, the message is thinking celestial will help you not be uh, caught up in these addictions. He calls them obsessions. 
But Thinking Celestial will help you do everything church leaders tell you to do. And that's really the point. He focuses now for a period of time on the law of chastity. He says physical intimacy only for man and woman married to each other. We know that that's what the LDS church teaches. That's the only way that physical intimacy is permissible is between a man and a woman. No man and man physical intimacy. Thank you very much. That would not be thinking celestial. It might be celestializing, but it wouldn't be thinking celestial. Public opinion, he tells us, is not the arbiter of truth. God is the arbiter of truth, and President Nelson is his spokesperson. This is the point at which I said, I think he's up to at least 20 times of saying things celestial by this point. He quotes Paul from the New Testament, that Paul, about saying in the latter days, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So if you depart from the faith, if you leave the Mormon church, it's because you're giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Never take counsel, he tells us. Never take counsel from those who don't believe. Okay. Sounds like you're getting a little bit obsessive there with the people from whom you'll take counsel, President Nelson. Only believing Mormons are those you should take counsel from, and obviously that would be in your priesthood chain of authority, right? those above you in the priesthood line. Those are the only people from whom you should take counsel. You should not listen, obviously, to anybody who does not believe because what do they have to add to the conversation? What kind of good counsel could they possibly give to you? Ignore them. Pretend they're not there. Seek guidance from prophets, seers, and revelators, right? And from the Holy Ghost who will confirm what they said. Don't listen to these voices of people like Radio Free Mormon. President Nelson admonishes the crowd. Think celestial. Oh, and then he mentions tithing. He's going to talk about tithing too. Remember, there was a prior talk about tithing. And I can't remember who gave it, but it was a long list of things about tithing. Was it Neil Anderson? Where it's not about the money, remember. It's not about the money. It's about you. It's about the faith. That's what it is. And he follows the same message. He says when he was young, he was making $15 a month. Of course, that's back when $15 went a long way, but apparently it was still a pittance at the time. It was hard to live on. His dad asked him if he was paying tithing on that $15 a month. And he thought, no, I haven't been. But he repented and he started doing it. So a tithe of 15 bucks is a buck 50. And he says his dollar 50 didn't matter to the church, but it did matter to him. Yeah, it changed him. It's all about faith, this tithing thing. And it builds faith in God and Jesus Christ. I think he's getting a little bit obsessed with tithing. It also happens to help the church hoard $157 billion, but it's not about the money. It's about, it's about the faith. It's like he's saying, uh, this is the second talk I mentioned. Yeah, where we, we're hearing about tithing, being about faith, and we need to pay it. And the church doesn't need it, but we still need to pay it. The message seems to be, give us your money. It's not about the money. It's about you. You need to give us your money because you will be benefited by giving us your money. And then he talks about building more temples that has been going on in case anybody has noticed it or not noticed it. And then he makes his announcement at the end of his talk. Were you thinking that he had announced a lot of temples before at the end of General Conference? Well, I don't know if he has ever announced 20 new temples in General Conference. Maybe he has, but he sure as heck is going to now. I was writing down fast. I could not get all of the towns or cities where these are built, but I did get the countries at least. I got some of the towns. Okay, here we are. Samoa, new temple. Cancun, Mexico, new temple. Peru, new temple. Peru, new temple, obviously in a different place than Peru. Okay, excuse me, I have to. Okay, now, Chile, Brazil gets two new temples. Nigeria gets a temple. Ghana gets a temple. Angola gets a temple. That should be 10, starting over. Congo gets a temple. Philippines gets a temple. Osaka, Japan, where I served my mission, gets a temple. Maui, Hawaii, oops, did I count that one? <laughs> I can't remember, gets a temple. Fairbanks, Alaska gets a temple. 
And finally, yeah, the last five, Vancouver, Washington gets a temple. Colorado Springs gets a temple. Tulsa, Oklahoma gets a temple. Roanoke, Virginia gets a temple. And last but not least, Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia gets a temple. What happened to the temple in China? That's what I want to know. Remember the temple he announced in China a while back? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this uh, temple in Mongolia is going to meet the same fate. I'm not sure. We'll have to see what happens. But this is a freaking lot of temples that have been announced. And, of course, the, the crowd is going gonzo over all these temples. And, in fact, they continue to go gonzo as the choir sings the closing song of Teach Me to Walk in the Light of His Love. And that, my friends, is the close of General Conference, semi-annual General Conference, the 193rd of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I have kept my promise to you. I have kept my commitment. I feel like I've really accomplished something. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the recaps of General Conference. I'm really excited now because I get to finally go out and enjoy what's left of my weekend. But it's been a great delight sharing this with you. Please hit like, please hit subscribe. If you do that, that will just make my day and it will be more than just recompense for this whole weekend that I've given up so I could watch General Conference and report on it back to you. By the way, you can also, if you really, really like this, go to RadioFreeMormon.org, hit the donate button, make a monthly donation today if you would. $5 a month is all I ask. If you want to give more, I will not say the nay, but $5 a month. If you could make a continuing contribution, that would be great. And I'd really, really appreciate it. So that is the end of the show. That is the end of General Conference. The next time I expect to see you is going to be next Wednesday on Mormonism Live, where we're going to go over the highlights and the lowlights of General Conference. I feel like I'm somewhat prepared for that task now. Although it's going to be a challenge out of all these 10 hours to pick the best moments of General Conference or the worst moments of General Conference. At any rate, this is Radio Free Mormon signing off the air. Thanks, everybody, for watching. I hope you have a great Sunday evening and an absolute